Throughout the run of George Orwell's 1984, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School and the American Repertory Theater co-hosted a series of special panel discussions around questions of surveillance, totalitarianism, and the role of technology in popular uprisings. On February 24, 2016, Arkan Fung, Ford Foundation Professor of Democracy and Citizenship and Academic Dean of Harvard Kennedy School, joined ART's Artistics Programs Associate Robert Duffley for a talkback following a performance to discuss issues of control and secrecy in the United States. For more information about the American Repertory Theater, visit AmericanRepertoryTheater.org. And for more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. My name is Robert Duffley. I'm Artistic Programs Associate here at ART. And I'm thrilled to have joining us tonight Dr. Arkan Fung. Um, Arkan is the Academic Dean and Ford Foundation Professor of Democracy and Citizenship at the Harvard Kennedy School, and his research explores policies, practices, and institutional designs that deepen the quality of democratic governance. So I'm sure we have a lot to talk about tonight. Obviously, this is a very visceral production, as we were just talking about a little bit. So I want to ask, this is a, a story that I think everybody at least thinks they know something about. So I was just wondering how your feeling after experiencing it on stage for the first time? Uh, I think that one thing that I didn't expect, and I'd read the script before, you know, kindly yeah. you had provided the script, and so thank you very much for that. Uh, one thing I was not expecting was how effective the performance would be at conveying the reality of physical vulnerability mm -hmm. and uh, physical pain and that, that reality of torture, and I think it did an extraordinary job and brought that part of 1984. I'm a political scientist by training, so you know my reading of the book is at a fairly abstract level about mm -hmm. the system and the politics. But this really brought home intensely uh, in the the very personal, individual, physical reality of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And as we compare the physical production that we've all experienced with the story that exists in so many places in today's culture, one of the things that I hope we can all do over the course of this conversation is compare the world of Orwell's story with the contemporary political landscape. Um, so thinking about that, I wanted to ask, Orwell is, an, or uh, Winston is an outlaw because he's fighting for a number of things in this story. He's fighting for idealistic things like truth and like love, but also for material things like sex and like chocolate, and I was wondering, in your view, which of those things are most worth fighting for for him and which are most at risk in, in his or our world? I think that... I, think I that's see people right. disagreeing in the audience. Winston, Winston and O'Brien got it wrong and Julie got it right is what I felt when I was watching the play this time is, is Winston's um, mistake in the sense of moral mistake is it, it, that O'Brien pointed out was the willingness to do anything for this very abstract cause and I think Orwell in 1984 and in other work was very, very careful to point out the danger of that kind of abstract commitment that at bottom it's about human, human connection with one another and human solidarity and I think one important uh, piece of the play that, that I mean I'm fortunate enough to live in a reality in which this is an historical memory rather than a present reality, but is the, is the reality that a lot of people lived through in the 20th century of, including my father, you know, the real possibility of being betrayed by people in your family, 
Yeah. Right? And so that is, you know, it's that human solidarity and the connection, whether it's between Julia and Winston or between Winston and his sister or between the young girl and her mother or, or, and the young girl who eventually betrayed her father. It's that human bond that I think is the thing that is worth fighting for and protecting uh, above all in 1984. And I think, fortunately, <laughs> at least in the United States and, um, and much of the world now, at least we've won that, if not many other things. Mm -hmm. So comparing this world to different countries throughout time, do you see this world primarily as a reflection of other places at other times or of, of our own time or maybe a mix of both? You know, I'd be really interested in other in the reactions of people in this room to that. Yeah. I, you know, you, you might think that 1984 is a, in a, a historical piece about a totalitarian period in many places in the 20th century, and it certainly is that. Other people say, no, it's a more timeless piece. In this reading of the, the script and, and watching the performance just now, I think both kind of get it wrong that it's... Well, the first part is right. It's certainly about a period in the 20th century. I don't think it's timeless exactly. I think pieces of it are extraordinarily relevant. I think the hard edge of the authoritarian violent state reminded me, you know, that I think that's very relevant not for people living in 02138 exactly, but uh, for other people who are subject to the carceral state and mass incarceration, the hard edge of policing, and I think it's very relevant to the war on terror. That's not, you know, the majority of Americans by any means, but one of the things, the political contributions of art is to extend our imagination and our empathy, Richard Rorty said this, to imagine cruelty that we ourselves don't experience so that we can be sensitive to that and call it out and take action against it wherever it exists. And I think this powerfully does that, right? So the, the, I think 1984, this version of it, pulls out those strands of reality, right? And the strand of reality, I think, that resonated for me that is true in 02138 is the reality of surveillance mm -hmm. and um, information and, you know, transparency of individual private lives. Sure. And it's really interesting to think about, you know, the consequences are not the same at least, you know, as far as I can tell, as in 1984, but nevertheless is problematic and disturbing, and it's interesting to think about exactly why that is and what the characteristics of surveillance, of the current reality of surveillance is compared to the George Orwell's reality and, and the story that he created. Yeah, so when we're looking at what any, any phone in this auditorium is capable of today, right now, um, would you say that that's a more frightening idea than what the telescreen in Orwell's world is capable of? Much more frightening. Um, so the diary is a central artifact in the play, right? Beginning, yeah. middle, and end of the play and indicates the, you know, the, the most intimate thoughts right. of Winston Smith and part of the betrayal is the telescreen but also the possession of the diary and, and knowing what's in there, right? But... I think everybody, the phone in everybody's pocket is a much more intimate and complete rendition of your life than any diary could possibly be. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the phone combined with the probably 500 cameras that you walked by as you were walking from where you parked, 
in Harvard Square to this lot and many other dimensions, you know, ap parts of the apparatus of surveillance put together create a much, much more complete picture uh, of every individual than Orwell could have imagined. Now, one important difference between the state that or the, the nature of surveillance, the agent of surveillance that Orwell imagined in 1984 and our contemporary era right now is that uh, I do believe that the, the governmental surveillance state has more information about each of us than Orwell could have imagined, but I don't think it has the capability to use very much of that, you know, frankly. Mm. However, uh, private corporations have much more than the government and have the capability to use almost all of it, I believe. Um, and so how do we think about the risks posed by being surveilled by uh, government agents as opposed to private sector actors? I think that's an interesting question. So when we go from the world of this play out into the real world where so much of this surveillance is common and we're looking out for contemporary equivalents of the party, what would you say would be some warning signs as we're considering surveillance, among other things? Well, I think one hard edge to look out for is the abuse of information, for sure, right? And, it, and uh, law enforcement and security services are always subject to, or always, there's always the potential for the abuse of information by those kinds of agents. And in uh, contrast to 1984, I think the private use of that information is much more debatable about whether it's harmful and how it's harmful. Um, I actually regard it as fairly harmful, but a lot of other people don't. And you know, the, the main private sector use of information is not to put you in jail, but to sell you things, right? That's what it's for. That is the business model of marketing and directing to you exactly the vacation that you might want to get. You know, the marketers probably know what vacation would please you more than you do upon reflection, right? And they might be right. And they might, they probably are right. There's a, there's a story, of, I think that this is true, although I haven't actually tracked it down, of um, uh, a teenage girl getting a mailer for pregnancy, product, like diapers and stuff like baby products, and from some department store or some marketing thing and her it was target and her father got really angry and called up the store and said how can you do you know my daughter's far too young and it's just irrelevant and was really angry it turned out she really was pregnant and the oh the digital footprints had actually properly targeted her for these products right um in that case it was particularly harmful to her i imagine right sure, sure. but as a general matter the harm to the extent that there is harm i think is about the construction of desire right that's yeah. part of it and then part of it is just the harm from people knowing things about you that you would rather have them not know but rather than manipulating your behavior and it's just the sheer knowledge of it. some things are just my business and that's, I suppose, complexified by the fact that we're giving that information into Google and so many other sources? Uh, we are, and some would say that we're doing that voluntarily and with consent because we click through all of these consent forms, but I challenge anyone in this room to tell me what's on page two of any of those forms. I can't, couldn't tell you myself. Um, and so I don't think it's exactly with active consent in that regard. I think we do it because it's convenient, and we do it because we're in an early age of 
of uh, the evolution of these information collection methods at, in, at which the social and individual costs have not yet become clear. I think that's a really interesting distinction to make. Um, I want to make sure that we have time to take questions from the audience. So if you have a question, just do me a favor and raise your hand and let me bring you the microphone so we can include you in the recording for the podcast. And I'll start over here and circle the house this way. So right over here. Um, when I read the book in the 50s, uh, it scared the hell out of me. Uh, Joe McCarthy was in full swing, and the communist threat was very real, much more real than I felt tonight, I'm afraid. Um, That's a good thing. <laughs> you yeah. don't feel it tonight. And uh, I think that... Uh, the book went out of date in 1989 when the Iron Curtain fell and the fear of communism and um, the, the regimentation that communism brought with it uh, more or less disappeared. And I guess I disagree with you a little bit about the... the um, regimentation of what the internet knows about us today, I think is a lot more harmless than, than, than what we experienced in, at that time. So I struggled tonight to find a connection Excellent. with what you're talking about uh, here uh, compared to what I felt back then. I think the book, the novel was very visceral for me. Uh, this seemed outside. So I don't disagree with anything. That I, I quite agree with you, and I, I am very, very grateful that we don't have to experience this account as a visceral account of what might happen to us at this moment. And I think the character of uh, surveillance, whether it's from uh, information corporations or from the government, is uh, much more, they have much more information than, than Orwell or any uh, Soviet uh, Eastern Bloc state could have had. But the consequences of that information gathering for our liberty are much, much less than in that era, for sure. I don't think, I don't think there's any doubt about that, right? Uh, I think the, the part that, it's not exactly visceral, but I think it, at least for me, awakened my sensitivities in a way to thing, uh, the physical vulnerability and the hard edge of the state that other populations, as I said, who don't live in 02138 are experiencing and that, uh, for the most part, are not white, are, uh, are not middle or upper income. There are other kinds of populations that are small percentages of uh, you know, the American populace, but nevertheless worthy of concern because this kind of thing shouldn't happen to anybody. Any questions over here? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so one of the issues that this explored is objective truth and whether that actually exists. And that resonated with me because in this era, it seems like there isn't necessarily agreement about what the truth is. And I think one of the reasons why we see this polarization is because there is this disagreement about objective truth. 
Um, so I was just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I thought the treatment of truth and language was extremely interesting. So um, in the account of Newspeak, the vocabulary is getting shorter and shorter, right? And that's not a, exactly what's happening now at all, but the, the modes of... I was thinking of Twitter when he was talking about Newspeak. So instead of fewer and fewer words available in the dictionary, it's fewer and fewer words that you can string together and have and be received and listened to. You know, 140 characters is not very many words. So I thought that was an interesting piece of it, the, the language piece. Uh, the truth piece is complicated and goes in a couple of different directions. One direction is what you hit upon, is that, it, that, 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 that the circle of consensus of what counts as true objectively or even intersubjectively seems to be dissolving quite a bit, you know, in areas like climate change or even intertemporally in how much particular candidates are uh, held to account for being even consistent month to month. And um, Jason Stanley calls this idea truthiness, is that the important thing is not to be objectively true, but to have your side uh, put forward counterweights that countervail the untruths of the other side. So you might be justified in putting forward powerful untruths because the other side is also putting untruths and you need to like combat that, right? That's one idea. Um, another piece of the reality depiction in 1984 is Winston Smith's job, right? Is actually deleting people from collective memory and from official records that the party deems no longer uh, worthy of being, of existence in, in history or in the past, right? I kind of think today we have the opposite problem, and Victor Meyer Schoenberg has a, a book called Delete. And the point of that is in the information age, the problem is not that people are forgotten, but that it's impossible to forget anything, right? Because all of these records are there forever, uh, you know, despite EU orders for Google takedown and so on. And so, um, in part of Victor's book, he uh, cites these psychology studies about people with a particular brain disorder in which they can't forget the unpleasant interactions that they have with other people. Like part of, I guess, part of the human capacity, he says, is that we're more prone to remember positive interactions and downplay negative ones, and that's one of the things that allows us to get along. But on the internet, there is no forgetting, and people with this particular disorder of not being able to downplay these negative interactions have a very difficult time forming relationships with one another because you're always remembering the bad stuff that happened, right? And so I think in another way, though there's uh, maybe too much reality that's hard to kind of get rid of that would be socially optimal to, to downplay because of the inability to forget even our private moments once they're on the internet. Another question back here. Thanks, Arkan. Um, William Binney, as you may know the name, was one of the leading um, NSA, worked at the NSA for many years, and he's one of the uh, key whistleblowers along with Tom Drake and some others. And I heard Bill Binney give a talk once where he basically explained how all of the information, all the electronic information of everybody in this room is available, collected, and stored, and sort of disagreeing with you a little, at least as I understood you, in terms of they can't really do much with this information, it seems pretty clear that they certainly can if and when they decide they would like to. Well, that's it. They can bring it up on a spreadsheet and have every electronic easy pass, 
every phone call, um, every uh, email, and all of that on a spreadsheet on a computer in front of people. Um, so I wonder, and then Edward Snowden comes along and makes a lot of, I think, useful disclosures, including, if I'm not mistaken, that actually some of this capability is live. It's not just going back and searching stored data in these massive facilities that are being built in Utah or wherever. So, and then people say, well, I don't have anything to worry about, so why should I care if the government has all this information? So I'd just like you to speak to this collect, mass collection storage and then the capacity to search um, when and if the, the government decides they want to. So I think there are many, many issues there. I think one of the most fundamental of those issues which you touched on is why do we care about privacy? And I think we're in a moment in which we are trying to revisit and figure out what the answer to that question is socially, right? And so the claim that I often run across is that uh, young people, undergraduates at Harvard College are accustomed to putting their most intimate um, acts and thoughts on the internet, and so they don't really care about privacy. They just have a fundamentally different attitude about it. I think part of, the, uh, part of that reality may be that the full consequences of that lack of privacy have not yet fully impacted them. I don't know, but I think we're in a moment of dramatic reconsideration of what privacy is and why it's valuable. And so I more or less regard it as a truth that uh, what I do in my room, in, in my bedroom, on my iPad, what I read is much less private than a conversation that I might have with you by out-of-town news in Harvard Square, right? So it's this reversal of the idea that the sidewalk is public and the home is private. I just, I think it just kind of doesn't work that way anymore, and we need to think about what exactly the harms are, right? And I think... You're right. The harms are not the harms of 1984 in which a government apparatus is using that private information to coerce everybody who disagrees with their politics into a particular view down to the individual. I just I don't accept that that's how it works now, right? But that doesn't mean that there are not harms to surveillance, and I think there are many. Um, and we just need, but I do not think that there's a social consensus about what those harms are. Last question right here. Um, I'm not sure how this fits, but you know the government's trying to get Apple to open up a, 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 an iPhone. I do. I just, there's a headline in the Times today that Apple is actually trying to build stronger security from the government for its iPhones. What is your take on that whole issue? The government's <laughs> taking it at, putting it as, this is one phone, and Apple's saying, no, this goes to a whole, whole um, panoply of, of problems for, for individuals. Yeah, so... I don't believe at all that it's just one phone. And as a matter of fact, we know it's at least 12 phones that the FBI has asked for access to in a similar way, right, in the, in the recent period. So it's definitely not just one phone. Um, I think 
part of the heart of the debate, well, one part of it is how private is a phone and how big of a deal is that? I think it's a pretty big deal. I think that, you know, at least my phone is pretty much an extension of my brain. Maybe has more information in a more accurate way than my brain does at this stage in my life, right? Um, so I think that's one serious question is what's at stake in your phone, in my phone? I think importantly at stake in the debate is how much we trust institutions and the rule of law and how much is about the technology, right? And so uh, my colleague Larry Lessig in a prior life wrote a book, Code, that said that what is actually in the software is doing the governing, not the laws, right? And so that is essentially Apple's argument, is that, look, once we write this piece of code, it doesn't matter what the laws and safeguards are, it's potentially out there in the wild and can be exploited by a lot of other people who you might not like. And so the main protection right now, Tim Cook is saying, is that this software simply does not exist. And you are asking us to bring into existence a vulnerability which currently does not exist, and we do not want to do that, right? Now, on the other side, which I'm ordinarily professionally inclined to be on because I study institutions and the rule of law and democratic practices, right, is to say no the rules of the game should guard against that. Look, there are lots of things that hurt other people. There are guns, there are automobiles, there are airplanes, there are parachutes. And we have all sorts of regular, there's food, there, you know, your spinach could have E. coli. And the reason that that doesn't kill you every day, any number of those things, is that we have laws and institutions and safeguards that regulate all of our behavior and the use of those technologies and products. And so similarly, we have rules that safeguard what the FBI can and cannot do with this set of technologies. And so you should rely on the courts and Congress to work that out, right? So there's a technological argument, which Apple is making, versus an institutional argument, which the FBI is making. Although I think the FBI's case is a little bit weaker because Congress did not pass a law saying that these, uh, that uh, backdoors had to be created or, right? And the FBI didn't go to Congress. It went to a court to say to Apple, it went to, to get this order. So I don't think that the democratic process is at an opportunity to uh, pass a judgment, that we the people have not passed a judgment on this question. Um, if we the people did pass judgment, would I trust that or would I trust the technology? I'm just not sure in this moment in time in the 21st century, I found the Snowden revelations so disturbing that I, uh, I don't know how accountable those institutions are at this moment. I think that contemporary comparison is a nice note to end on for tonight. Um, thank you all for joining us and thank you Dr. Fung for speaking with us this evening.